Welcome to Crawl Space. I'm Tim here today with Lance. How's it going, Lance? I couldn't be better. How are you today, Tim? I'm doing great and even better after speaking with our guest, former U.S. Marshal Mark McClish. Lance, how fun is this interview? Mark McClish is one of those guys that you speak to and anything he'll say, you take into uh, consideration his 26 years in federal law enforcement, all of his experience. So anything he says, it's kind of hard to argue against, right? He's got this statement analysis that he's developed. He's built it off of other tactics, other training, um, other other methods in how to detect liars. And, and he's built this statement analysis that is really fascinating. And he's got a website, statementanalysis.com. So check that out and and look at the studies and look at some of the facts and statistics that they have there. But just listen to his voice. I mean, the guy knows what he's talking about. Yeah, he's really great to talk to, and his site, StatementAnalysis.com, is really informative. And he knows our friend Art Roderick, too, which is really cool. And uh, Art comes up a little bit in the interview. And Lance, we first learned of Mark McClish and his statement analysis from Rebecca Sebastian's show, Dialogue. Folks might know Rebecca Sebastian from Dialogue, like you said. They also might know her from Yellow Tape True Crime Trivia. She's the pioneer behind that. She is also going to be now known as the newest member of Crawl Space Media. She's joining the network. She's joining the cult. She's not only bringing to the table her shows, she's bringing to the table her incredible background and her vast well of knowledge in terms of marketing and increasing brand awareness. So what she's bringing is not only her show, she's bringing a lot of expertise. So we're growing on many different levels here at Crawl Space Media. So welcome to the network, Rebecca, Sebastian, and Dialogue. And make sure to subscribe to Dialogue. There are links in the show notes. And Lance, we were on Dialogue just last week. Make sure to check out that episode. It's great. We really get to uh, explore the origins of our friendship. And thanks for introducing us to Mark McClish of Statement Analysis. And it's a really fun interview. I hope you enjoy it and learn a little bit more about statement analysis and how to detect if someone's being deceptive. Joining us now on the airwaves is Mark McClish from StatementAnalysis.com. How's it going, Mark? Going very well, Tim. Thanks for having me on the show. Thank you for joining us. You are an extremely busy person. So uh, just looking at your website, uh, StatementAnalysis.com, and uh, it it lists out your credentials. Um, I'm actually... it, it, It happens from time to time where I get a little bit intimidated when we have a guest on. And... This list of uh, of uh, experience here gives me a little bit of a cold sweat. Well, don't sweat it out because as I tell people in my seminars, do not use these techniques on family and friends or you get yourself in <laughs> trouble. So I, I will not be analyzing anything that you say. Oh, come on. <laughs> this is all a ruse. <laughs> Well, Mark, I noticed uh, in in looking at your background that you've worked for the U.S. Marshals. 24 years. My goodness. Well, Lance knows all about the U.S. Marshals. He's got a bunch of pins. I do. I was was graciously gifted a bunch of pins from former U.S. Marshal Arthur Roderick. Uh, Tim's very jealous about that. So maybe maybe you could be 
Tim's art and uh, toss him a couple of pins just to make him feel better. I can do that. I know art. I just saw him uh, a couple of months ago, I guess, was it CrowdSolve? Oh, yeah. In Chicago and Seattle, last year in Seattle. Very cool. Yeah. And Mark, if you were to give me a U.S. Marshall pin, that would make one pin between the two of us, uh, Lance and I. <laughs> so your career is, is very distinguished. You also worked for the Secret Service? Start off at the Secret Service uh, Uniform Division when I first got out of college. They were the first people to offer me a job. It wasn't exactly what I wanted, but hey, it was at the White House with President Reagan, so there was no way I was going to turn that down. And turned out he was a good president to work for. If you were standing post and he came walking by, he would always acknowledge you. Were you there when he was uh, shot by, was it Chapman? Uh, no, he was shot uh, by Hinckley in 81. Yeah, in 81. And then... After that, they had a big hiring drive and they expanded the duties of the uniform division. And so I, that's when I got hired in 83. I graduated from college in 82, so then I got hired in 83. Okay. Who did Chapman? Oh, Chapman was uh, John Lennon, right? John Lennon, okay. yes. Okay, sorry. I always get my, I always get my assassinators uh, confused. <laughs> so then what, what happened for you to have created this process with a, like, in your career? Well, I got eventually, uh, I got promoted to an instructor position at our training academy, uh, which is located at the Federal Law Enforcement Training Center, the Marshall Service Training Academy. And so when I got there, they asked me, well, what do you want to teach? And the first year I taught several different classes, fusion investigations, operational planning, but they also said, we want you to teach interviewing techniques and more specifically like linguistic analysis or statement analysis. And so they sent me to several classes on linguistic analysis, how to analyze a statement to determine if a person is being truthful or deceptive. And as I got into it, I found it to be very fascinating uh, to the point I decided to conduct my own research. And I ended up teaching at the academy for nine years. So for nine years, there were several different groups of people that I watched, uh, one of them being our students. I'd have them write me statements that were Half the class's statements were true. The other half had to write a fictitious statement, and I would analyze them to see what type of language they used. And and the, the statements, the papers they record them on were coded, so I knew who's being truthful, who's being deceptive. But after several years, I didn't have to rely on those codes. I could just read it and tell you if they were making up that story or, or telling me a truthful statement that was coming from their uh, memory. And so that's what got me involved in it, having to teach it, then kind of fine-tuning it and also uh, coming up with more techniques than what I was taught to determine if a person is being truthful or deceptive. And then because we conduct a lot of fugitive classes for state and local investigators, they come down for two weeks for fugitive training. I would give them some statement analysis training and they would take that back with them. And then it started generating calls for me to come speak to their department or their conference and so when I left the academy in 2000, I went back out into the field as a supervisory deputy, but I continued to get calls to go speak. And the marshal service would let me go speak. I couldn't get paid to do it, but as long as they would pay all my expenses, they would let me go do that. So I'd speak at quite a few uh, conferences for the next nine years. And then when I retired in 2009, I started advanced interviewing concepts. And what we do is provide interviewing skills training. And so I travel probably six months out of the year conducting statement analysis seminars uh, throughout the United States. Is statement analysis the same as scientific content analysis? It's similar, but there are some differences. Um, anybody who teaches uh, any type of form of linguistic analysis is going to teach you 
these same things. Look at the pronouns, look at the verb tenses, because those are all tried and true. Uh, scan, um, and I took the scan course in 91, so that was almost 30 years ago. I don't know what they're teaching now, but probably half the techniques that I teach, uh, I scan did not, I did not learn through scan or anybody else. I just developed them on my own studies. And so I'd estimate that probably, ha- like I said, half of what I teach is different from what scan teaches. And they may teach some of the same things I teach, which is fine with me um, because, you know, all these techniques get passed around, but yeah, uh, half of what I teach, like I said, is, you know, came, came about because of my studies. So that, that's an interesting career. You, you, you started tracking fugitives and, and working for the president, and now you've kind of transitioned really to a, a teacher role, it's, it seems like. You're kind of, which is mostly what you do now. Is that uh, correct? That's what I do uh, full-time now. Yeah, I always like teaching. That's one reason why I stayed at the academy for nine years. Most instructors stayed there for like three years, but I enjoyed teaching. Uh, and so I was down there all those years teaching. So that's as soon as I could retire, I retired at the age of 50, the first opportunity I had, because I knew I wanted to do this uh, full time and go out and teach uh, the statement analysis techniques. Was it something like like it just came naturally to you? Like you were really good at interrogating suspects in the marshal service and uh, and it kind of just naturally translated? A little bit. I wouldn't consider myself at the time to be an, an expert interviewer. Um, sometimes I felt like ah, that person's lying to me and we all kind of get that sense, but maybe I couldn't put my finger on it. But now and this is what I do. I help investigators. You know, I'll show them a statement and they'll know, yeah, there's deception in that statement. Or I'll show them a true statement, a false statement. They'll pick the false one every time, but then I'll show them how they know it's true you know, because of certain words that person used. And it's just sometimes, sometimes they're words you you hear, but you don't realize what they're saying. You don't think about what that word actually means. And so, and so it made me a better interviewer as I was teaching these techniques and doing studies on these uh, techniques to see what worked, what didn't work. It made me a much better interviewer, but what it gets down to is being a good listener. Listen to what that person is telling you. And what I do is I show people what to listen for or what to look for, you know, in a written statement. So what are some of these, uh, I guess, uh, flagged keywords that liars or people who are being deceptive will use? And you also have um, a theory, uh, probably a, a proven theory about the number three as well. Is that correct? I do. Um, yeah, there are some what I call unique words or unique phrases that people like to use that you want to listen for. In 2018, Chris Watts from Frederick, Colorado, said his family, his wife and two daughters disappeared. Uh, He gave a very informal interview in his driveway to a local television station. And at one point he told them, quote, I have no idea like where they went, unquote. Well, very rarely can a person honestly say, I have no idea. Most people have an idea and opinion on just about everything. So when people say I have no idea, they're acting like they know absolutely nothing. And that's just very hard to believe. It doesn't mean you know where they're at, but usually you got an, an, an idea or an opinion. And eventually he was uh, confessed that he did murder his wife and, and two daughters, unfortunately. So I tell people, listen for that phrase. I have no idea. I have no clue. No inclination. The faintest idea. That light bulb in your head should turn on because, you know, rarely can a person honestly say that. And then there's other words to listen for. Uh, for example, the word Never. It's a negative word. It often fools the interviewer into believing the person has given a good denial when the subject uses the word never. But it's important to remember that the word never does not mean no. 
Therefore, you cannot use the word never in lieu of the word no. You know, for example, did you bring a gun to the house? I never had a gun. That sounds like a good answer, but what the person is saying is, I have not ever had a gun, because that's what the word never means, not ever. They're talking about their entire lifetime. Well, I didn't ask you about your entire lifetime. I asked you about this specific date. Did you bring a gun to the house? And so when people use the word never as a substitute for the word no, it's a strong indication, you know, they're being deceptive. Because most people would just say, no, I didn't bring a gun or I didn't have a gun. And can you tell this via spoken word and via written word? Spoken and written, yes. Is one better than the other? The written is better only in that uh, sometimes people will write more than what they'll say, but mainly because with its written statement, you can just take your time analyzing it. I show people how to mark up a statement. You want to underline certain words, circle certain words. It helps you get the most information out of that statement. But when you're conducting a verbal interview, obviously you got to be a little bit quicker on your feet. And it's difficult because sometimes you're taking notes, you're writing down certain things, and they'll say something that sparks your interest. Generally, you don't want to confront them immediately on that. You want to just let them give you a statement. So you're taking all these notes down. And so it's a little bit harder with a, with a uh, verbal interview. Uh, so the written statement, again, people send me statements that are 10 years old, and we can still analyze them because they're you know preserved in writing. And is it sort of unbeatable, like uh, unlike a polygraph? Uh, for the most part, it, it is unbeatable. Now, we know that some people are better liars than others. Now, every once in a while, you'll, somebody will say, well, he's a good liar. And I say, no, there's no such thing as a good liar. They're just poor listeners. If you listen closely, deception will be there. Now, some people may not give us as many deceptive indicators in their language, but they will show up. And again, in an interview setting, I'm going to pick up on those deceptive indicators, and then I'm going to ask a few more questions about those areas to try to flush it out. You know, why did he say it that way? Or why did he use a certain word? And then we start to, based on those answers, we get a better idea. Was it just a fluke? I mean, the techniques aren't 100%, you know, but, or is it an indication he was being deceptive at that point? What's the difference between analyzing a written confession and analyzing, say, a transcript of, of someone who didn't know that they were uh, going to have this statement analyzed? Well, the written statement, we know that's exactly what the person said. It's in his own handwriting. That's usually what we want to get. Every once in a while, I will receive statements where it was the police policy to record it for them. They wrote it for him, and then he signed off saying, yeah, that's my statement. And the problem there is, is that a word for word? You can't paraphrase. If you paraphrase, you're changing the statement. That's not exactly what he said. So it needs to be you know, word for word, and that's what we're looking at with the transcript too. As long as it's word for word, we're good to go. We can analyze that and see exactly what's going on here. But with a written statement, yeah, we know it's his statement. And then there are some things we can look at the person's handwriting. I'm not a handwriting expert. I've got a few friends that are. And uh, there are a few things we can look for in the handwriting to see, well, is something going on there? Um, if the person, what I tell people, don't give them ruled paper. You, know, you give them ruled paper, they know to stay straight across that line. You give them a blank sheet of paper. So now if they're writing and being truthful, it usually flows pretty smoothly. But if they start to think too much because they're making up a story, they may unknowingly start to drift upwards or downwards. And so we pick up on that, and we're going to ask a few more questions about that portion of their statement. You know, why did they do that, unknowingly do that? And it may, may be because it's not coming from memory, just flowing from them. It's the same way in a verbal statement. If it's not coming from memory, sometimes you have the ums, the ahs, the pauses, because they got to think a little bit too much about what to say. Right, right. 
so just to follow up on that, everyone's got a different way of speaking, right? They all have a certain syntax and, and cadence in the way they speak. Do you take that into account or is that something that is distracting when you're looking at a transcript? You know, a lot of what I just did, you know, ums, uh, maybe starting a sentence and going back and, com- you know, not, not finishing it and then completing it later on. Does, is that distracting? Well, it's not distracting. Um, it, it, it tells us something if they're pausing too much like that. And you're hoping, and I've seen a lot of transcripts online, and then I'll actually watch the video of the interview, and the transcript's not accurate because the person will say, you know, and that they don't put that in the transcript. Or they'll say, um, or ah, and they don't put that in the transcript. But it's important because it shows us a pattern if they're pausing too much. You know, the phrase, you know, some people have a habit of using that. You know, shows up frequently throughout their statement, you know, you know, you know, and, and that's fine. So those are idiosyncrasies they have. But for other people, they use it sparingly and they'll say, you know, because they want you to take for granted what they're saying is true. And we don't take anything for granted. You know, if you say to me, I'm, I'm being truthful, I believe you. If you say to me, you know, I'm being truthful, I have to believe you want me to take for granted that you're being truthful and you haven't told me that you are being truthful. So that phrase, you know, can play an important role. And then again, sometimes it's a, a matter of, a, like I said, just have a habit of using that phrase. It's the same way with grammar skills. We have to take that into consideration too. You know, if a person has poor grammar skills, if English isn't their first language, that may account for why they use the wrong verb tense or the wrong pronoun. And so we factor that in. And again, we're not looking for one thing necessarily that says, oh, you're being deceptive. If they are being deceptive, it's going to show up several different ways, you know, throughout their statement. So what is this uh, use of number three? Well, the use of number three came up several years ago. Um, myself and some other uh, interviewers were finding that people, when they had to come up with a number, they often use the number three or a number that begins with three. I'm not sure why this is. What the theory I go with is that a lot of nursery rhymes and fairy tales that we heard as kids use the number three. Uh, Goldilocks and the three bears, three little pigs, three blind mice. Then there's a lot of subtle references to the number three. Uh, Jack climbed the beanstalk three times. Rumpel steals and spun straw and a gold three times, gave three guesses at his name. And we all know if you read that Genie's Magic Lamp, you're going to get your three wishes. And so it almost seems like that when an, as adults, when we have to come up with a number that we know is not true, we think of the number three because we know the number three wasn't true with all these fairy tales that we heard over the years. What you also find and probably more so, is that when a person doesn't know the exact number, they'll use the number three, or like they'll say three seconds or 30 seconds or three minutes, something like that. And that shows up quite frequently. They're not being deceptive. It just means they don't know the exact number. So a very common one is to say, you know, 30 seconds. 30 seconds later, this happened. Maybe it was 30 seconds, but probably wasn't exactly 30 seconds. It's probably like 20 seconds, but that's the number people will go with. And so I just tell people it's not, you know, most of the techniques are based on the English language, word definitions, rules of grammar. Uh, the number three is not based on that. It's just based more on anecdotal, what we've seen over the years. And I, and I just tell investigators, if you hear that number three, that light bulb should turn on, take a closer look at it. See, it's a, is it an accurate number or are they purposely, you know, being deceptive by using that number? So it's just one more thing we're looking for within the statement. Wow, my my brain is uh, hyper focused now on everything that's coming out of my mouth and everything that we've heard in the past from previous guests. Well, now that I've told you about that number three, you're going to hear it all the time now. I'll probably hear it three more times during the next uh, three minutes. 
<laughs> it almost seems random. Um, so, like, what, what do you say to folks who say this is this is useless? This is just pseudoscience? It's not science at all because it's based on the English language. That's what people say. Well, where's the research? Well, there is some research on my website, but you know, when Bill Clinton said I was bound to be truthful and I tried to be, you don't need research to know that the word tried means he wasn't truthful. He just said he tried to be, but he wasn't truthful. And that's how 90% of the techniques are. They're just the English language, but I get people to listen to what people are saying. And again, a lot of times it's a certain word that maybe has several meanings and you didn't realize that. Or it's based on, you know, the rules of grammar. And so we look at that as well. But there's just a few techniques, such as the number three, they're just based on, um, you know, observations that, that I've had over the years. But most of them are, are spot on because it's the English language and when we analyze a statement, we do not interpret. And that's a big misconception there. Uh, we don't interpret. We just, people mean exactly what they say. And if you take that approach, then you, a lot more jumps out of that statement. Or you, you don't make determinations if someone's lying or not, or you, do, you, will, you will say there's deception here, this suggests deception? A lot of times when investigators send me statements, that's exactly what I'm telling them. Here's the areas that they're being deceptive in. Uh, you should take a closer look. If you're going to re-interview them, ask them about these certain areas. Every once in a while, I might say, yeah, they're lying. And here's where they're lying about it. Or they did it. Uh, you know, the pronouns give us responsibility. You know, if you, if you refer to the victim as my victim, you just confessed. Because most people would say the victim or her or him, but not my victim. And so every once in a while, that one pronoun will show us, yeah, they did it. But for the most part, it's just there's a strong indication they're being deceptive. Why are they being deceptive? You know, it's, just, you know, it's against the indication they probably were involved in whatever they're investigating. But it just points them in the right direction. It helps them eliminate suspects is what it does. America, we are endowed by our creator with certain unalienable rights, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Grand Canyon University, we believe in equal opportunity, and the American dream starts with purpose. To serve others in ways that promote human flourishing and create a ripple effect of transformation for generations to come, find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Private, Christian, affordable. Visit gcu.edu. So that was my question when you gave that example of someone who might slip and say, my victim instead of the victim or she or he. When they come, when you, how do, where where do you proceed with that? Like, they're probably going to say, oh, I didn't mean that. Like, I slipped up. How do you, is there any way that you can further prove that? Yeah, you usually don't want to confront them on their language because they may do exactly what you said. Well, I didn't mean that. Well, but that's not a true statement. People mean exactly what they say. You maybe didn't mean to let that out, but you meant what you said. But you don't immediately confront them on it. You realize, oh, wait, he just confessed to me. So now you can ask more questions about it. Uh, and you're hoping, again, ultimately to get them to confess in a case like that. Uh, but without confronting him, that would be the last resort I would do. If I can't get him to confess, I'd finally maybe point out to him, you said my victim. You just took responsibility for her and then see how he handles that. But initially, you don't want to confront them on their language. Just continue to ask a few more questions about it. Okay, so so is it safe to say that this technique and uh, analysis is to be used as a tool in a larger investigation? It can be used in investigation, um, but you know any citizen can use it. Again, I jokingly say don't use it on family and friends, but if you've got kids, that's hard to resist, especially if they're teenagers. 
also when you're watching television, you're watching politicians. I mean, politicians, like most people, generally will not lie. People don't want to lie. But if you listen, they'll start to qualify their statement. You know, in um, May of this year, uh, President Trump went down into the uh, bunker under the White House. There were some protests going on across the street. And he came out and said, uh, quote, I was down during the day and I was there for a tiny little short period of time. It was much more for an inspection. So he wants us to believe he was down there for an inspection. But he didn't say that. He didn't say I was down there for an inspection. He said I was down and it was much more for an inspection. So the words much more tell us there's another reason why he was down there. Now, he's playing it off as an inspection. But then a few days later, the uh, attorney general in an interview said that the Secret Service recommended he go down there as a security precaution. And that's why he was down there. We all know that because of the protests and the Secret Service. But he's trying to make it sound like he, he wasn't you know, hiding, which you know, I'm sure he was and it was a Secret Service. But he's trying to make it sound like it was an inspection, which I'm sure he looked around and inspected things. But that phrase much more tells us something else was going on. So he couldn't say, again, he couldn't say I was down there for an inspection because that would be a lie. And so he qualifies his statement. And that's what you'll find with most people. They don't want to lie but they'll qualify their statements. So even as you're listening to a politician, you can watch a fictional murder mystery movie. And even though it's fictional, you can figure out who did it in the first 15 minutes. If you listen to how people phrase their statement, if you listen to how people answer questions, because again, the director knows who's going to lie, who's going to tell the truth. And they'll have the actors that are going to lie, answer questions. just like a real deceptive person will answer them, you know, without realizing it. I love that. I love that example you gave because it's uh, very topical and it's, it's also an example of something that everyone knew was a lie. Everyone knew, or not a, uh, not directly a lie. Everyone knew it was a deception, and it's just to 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 get it put in in phrasing like that makes it feel better in my head that that I'm not alone in this. Yeah, if you just again you know it, but if you listen closely, then you'll realize okay, here's how I know it because of that phrase much more. You know, something else is going on. Right now, what is the story breakdown? You have a ratio here. Well, when people give a statement about an incident, something happened to them, it'll usually be comprised of three segments, a before, during, and after incident segment. In other words, a person will tell us what was going on before the incident began. Then they'll talk about the incident itself. Then they'll talk about what happened after the incident was over with. And how much time they devote to those three segments gives us a good idea if it's a truthful or deceptive story. In a truthful story, a person spends about 25% of their statement talking about what was going on before. 50% 50% will be about the incident itself. That's kind of the most important thing, what, you know, what happened, what was going on. So half the statement will be about the incident itself. It's usually the after-incident statement that lets us know if it's a truthful or deceptive statement. Because in a truthful story, there's always something going on after the incident is over with. Uh, the police are called. People fill out forms. People are comforted. People take showers. And so that shows up in their statement. A truthful story has a significant ending. But deceptive stories often have a very short ending because to a deceptive person, it's important to set the stage for their bogus tale. It's important to tell us what happened, but then it ends very quickly because there was no ending. So they don't make up a significant ending. And so the formula that I use is 25, 50, 25, you know, give or take. Um, But what you'll find a lot of times is deceptive stories will have about maybe a 40% 40 beginning, 50% uh, middle incident there, and then a very short ending, maybe only like ten percent. And I've done a lot of, you know, looked at a lot of statements like that. More, you know, written statements. You can use this technique with. You can't use it with a verbal statement, but with written statements, 
and marked out those percentages, and, and it holds true just about every time. Are there any significant words that exist in that last part, that last uh, percentage, whether it's 15% or 10%? Do you find uh, that certain words are consistent when they're not uh, knowing the end, when they haven't come up with the end of their story? Not too much. I mean, the only thing I've seen come up is sometimes to say, well, that's basically what happened. Well, the word basically tells us there's more going on that you haven't told me about. Um, and so they may end statements like that, but for the most part, it's just a very short ending. Now, any significant deviation of any three of those, I've seen statements that were 50% before and then 25-25 that turned out to be bogus. But most of the time it's that after instant statement lets us know if it's a truthful or deceptive statement. And just what you're looking for there mainly is is how, how does it end and very quickly. But then, yeah, you could look at the language. And like I said, sometimes people say, you know, that's kind of what happened. That's basically what happened. Well, that means you know, you've got more information that you haven't told me about. And in one of the samples that you sent, it says, uh, I think is also a phrase that, that means uncertainty. That sounds kind of like that sounds right, I think. Sure. You know, I think, I believe means the person's not committed to that statement. Now, I mean, people use, will use that all the time. Politicians will use it all the time. Why, you know, I think this is what's going on. And maybe they do know what's going on. But again, they're not, instead of just saying this is what's going on, they'll just say, I think. So it means there's a little uncertainty there. It doesn't mean they're necessarily being deceptive or lying, but it does mean they haven't fully committed, you know, to that statement. Has there ever been any scientific analysis done on this? I've done some studies, such as we just talked about the story breakdown on on some of the other language. You know, I, I'd get like 100 people to give me a statement. I have them write me a, a, a statement about one last one I did, write a statement about being robbed. And some people wrote about uh, home invasion. Some people wrote about walking to their car in a parking lot and being mugged. And then I looked at those statements. One was a story breakdown. And again, these are all fictitious. They had to be fictitious statements. They had to be make them up. And so they'd all have most of them, like 90 some percent at very uh, short endings. Only a couple people include a significant ending trying to convince me that it was a truthful statement. And then other things as well that I'm looking for in their language. Do you ever have any problems uh, or ever in a situation where you you know that someone's lying or you want them to be lying and, and you're uh, sort of looking at it with, through that lens? Does that maybe cloud it a little bit? Well, no, I try not to do that. And that's why when people send me statements, don't tell me anything about it. Just send me the statement and let me look at it because I don't want to know what you know, what other evidence there is. I don't want that to influence you know, my uh, analysis of this statement. So I just read it. You do your best to let the words speak for themselves, not to try to you know add any preconceived notions to it, to your analysis. You just want to let the words speak for themselves. And then after I analyze it, then sometimes when I give my analysis to the investigator, I may have a few questions for him, which sometimes can clarify some of the things I saw in there, information he has that, you know, initially I did not want to know about. So the the least amount of context is better for you? Is initially better. And again, sometimes, like I said, there's some unusual statement. I'm not sure what he's talking about here. And the investigator can clarify that for me. And okay, then I guess we're okay with that. But for the most part, yeah, just let the language speak for itself. If someone were to email you and, and ask you to do this, is that something you do? Do you take uh, clients? I do take clients. Again, most of my, I do it free for law enforcement, but then I do charge. If there's civilians, I will charge them, you know, to analyze the statement. 
Now I have what's called a statement analyzer. It's an online program that will analyze a statement for you. It'll, it'll scan the statement and then it'll highlight certain keywords within that statement. You click on that keyword and it tells you why it was flagged. And a lot of law enforcement use, uh, use this tool. It's, it's just, I saw it as a subscription, a one-year subscription. But what I was getting was a lot of emails from probably teenagers. You know, I think my girlfriend's cheating on me. We look at this email. I would have done that. <laughs> no. <laughs> so what I did was I offer this statement analyzer as a one-day subscription. I sell it as a one-year, but you can purchase for, I think it's $3.99, 24 hours. You can use it. You can you know use as much as you want in that 24-hour period. Put your email in there, your statement. It'll analyze it for you and, and help you. It won't tell you if the person's being truthful or deceptive, but it's going to point out errors of deception. So if there's enough of them, then you would conclude they probably are being deceptive. And so that's cut down on a lot of uh, just junk email like that. But no, there are some people who, who want certain depositions analyzed. And so they can shoot me an email and I'll definitely uh, take a look at that for them. Oh, that's amazing. Wow. I got to know more about that. Is, 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 do you need a baseline, like in the way like a polygraph needs, needs some obvious ones, like people's names and things like that first? No, no baseline. And that's probably the second biggest misconception with the statement analysis techniques. As you mentioned, polygraph, body language, you have to have a baseline. That's what a body language is all about, establishing that baseline. But not with statement analysis. Um, all we do is read the statement and let it speak to us. Now, there are some things that maybe we could call a baseline, like I mentioned the word, you know. If I see it showing up repeatedly throughout their statement, well, then I know it's probably, uh, again, a habit they have of using that phrase. And so some people may say, well, that's a baseline. Okay. But initially, no, we're not establishing any baseline. We're just reading a statement. Let it speak to us. This is what the person's telling you. I'm curious about someone who is in the habit of asking clarification on a question or asking a question back to you in an interview. Is that something to be mindful of when you're looking for or, or when you're trying to uh, figure out if someone's being deceptive? It is. Uh, if a person answers your question with a question, it means you ask a sensitive question. Now, there could be one exception to that. They didn't hear you. And so they may say to you, can you please repeat the question? But even then, it's probably a stall tactic to give them time to think about their answer. And, and that's what you want to recognize. And that's what I tell people. If they answer a question with any type of question, it means you ask a sensitive question. They're probably stalling for time to think about how to answer that question. Now, the one way you can tell if it's definitely a stall tactic is because what happened is, is you'll say, uh, you know, did you take the money? And they might respond, did I take the money? No. Well, they asked the question back, did I take the money? But they didn't wait for the interviewer to respond to their question because they weren't looking for an answer. It was just a stalled tactic to give them time to think about how should I answer this? And so you want to recognize it was a sensitive question and you want to ask a few more questions about that. What, what's going on here? You know, why is this such a sensitive question? Have you ever been asked to analyze uh, like call logs, like police dispatch logs? Never uh, dis Police dispatch logs. I mean, some 911 calls I'll analyze, but nothing with um, call logs such as you're referencing. That's interesting. So is it somebody calling up saying that someone's been hurt or a crime is being committed and you're brought in to find out if this person was the perpetrator? 
Exactly. And that's what you're looking for. Is the caller the perpetrator or are they an innocent party who found their wife unconscious? So they call 911. And we can use the statement analysis techniques to analyze their language. As you just mentioned, if they, you know, if the, if the 911 opera asks them a question and they respond with a question, that indicates some sensitivity, something's going on there. But there are other things you want to look for in a 911 call. And uh, retired uh, police officer Tracy Harpster and Susan Adams with the FBI did a study on 911 calls, looking at truthful callers and deceptive callers, and came up with other things to look for besides just simply analyzing the language. And like one was, what is the plea for help? What's the caller calling about? And a truthful caller is going to say, my wife's passed out. I need an ambulance, you know, something like that. But if the caller just calls and says, I need an ambulance, well, you know, what's going on? They haven't really talked about their wife or whatever, who the, whoever the person might be. So you're looking for other factors too, you know, exactly what are they, what are they asking for? That reminds me of the moment um, from the OJ Simpson trial when it was revealed that he never even asked how his wife died. Yeah. I mean, that's definitely something you want to pick up on. It just seems odd that, you know, that would be one of the, one of the top questions you'd be asking. How'd your spouse, how'd your spouse die? I have um, one question that just came into my head right now. Have you ever dealt with anyone being deceptive based on the fact that they would joke about the crime that you're talking about? Do you know what I mean? Yeah, some people, again, will use you know, humor, try to infuse that into their answers to try to make it sound like you know they're not involved that they're an innocent party uh, for some people, for some guilty people, that's maybe one way of dealing with it, trying to use a little, little humor like that. And so it's something definitely that raises a red flag. Um, we're going to ask a few more questions about that, but in addition to analyzing the language itself. I assume you've worked with polygraphs as well. I'm not a polygraph examiner, so I've never conducted any. I've talked to, you know, but I've talked to polygraph examiners. Yes. Right, or you've used them in your work? I've never used them in my work, uh, never had to, because what, what I would do in some interviews is I would, if I think the person's being deceptive, I would say, well, if I gave you a polygraph, what's it going to tell me? Now, a truthful person would say, I'm telling the truth. A deceptive person might say, well, you know, those things aren't always very accurate, you know, and so they'll hem-haw around a little bit, and that, that alone tells me right there, I don't need to give them a polygraph, I know they're being deceptive. And again, I'm looking for a fugitive, so you know, that's a little bit different than trying to prove that somebody committed a crime. But yeah, that's that's what I would do. And of course, police do that in some form or fashion, or they may actually schedule the suspect for a polygraph, and then the guy always backs out. He never shows up or something. And so that's a, an indicator. So then how much more effective do you uh, believe statement analysis uh, is than a polygraph, or is that tough to answer? No, it's not tough to answer. I mean, a polygraph is a very good tool. Um, it depends on the person administering the polygraph and the equipment they're using. But the main thing with a polygraph, it's limited to yes or no questions. With the statement analysis techniques, we can analyze yes or no questions, but we can also analyze statements. And that's what a polygraph can't do. And again, if you analyze the statement, it's only good as the person you know conducting that analysis but if they take that approach, I'm not going to interpret anything. I'm going to believe what this person is telling me. Take a look at the language. You can get a lot more out of uh, a statement or out of, you know, using the statement analysis techniques than you can with a polygraph. Have you ever had a moment where somebody was deceptive because they wanted to be convicted of a crime for the credit? I have not experienced that. 
yeah, I'm sure it happens. Everything, you know, there's nothing new under the sun, but you know, that's, that is possible. I mean, we know we have some false confessions every once in a while and there's different reasons why people may falsely confess. Sometimes it's, it's beaten out of them, not literally, but, but other times there probably are people that confess because they want to go back to uh, prison. Has there been any uh, real life scenarios where you worked with law enforcement to say, check out a nine one one call or or some some statement or something, and then like a year from that moment, you found out that uh, the person you were looking at has been arrested for the crime? Oh yes, um, you know I get statements all the time from investigators now. If they think the person's guilty, and of course, a lot of the detectives have training in statement analysis or some form of linguistic analysis, uh, they won't send it to me. They think they know what's going on. But if, if they're not sure, those are the ones that I'm usually getting. Uh, and so sometimes I tell them, no, I think the person's being truthful. Most of the time, it's I think they're being deceptive because the officer has a pretty good idea they're being deceptive and maybe doesn't know exactly where within the statement. So they send it to me. But yeah, I've had a lot of cases where, you know, I'll tell them, no, th- this person most likely did it. Here's why we know it. Here's what you need to ask about. I ask them to follow up with me, you know, when the case comes to some resolution and sometimes they do, sometimes they don't. Sometimes I try to give them a call to see what happened because I like to keep track of that. You know, was I was I helpful? Um, but in the ones that do get back to me, yeah, it's always been, yeah, he pled guilty to some, you know, maybe like a lesser charge or something like that. Do you ever find yourself encountering resistance around this? Because some people just might not, I, I mean, understand that what you're talking about? Uh, very rarely. You know, most of the, when I do the classes, it's attended by mainly law enforcement, but most of my classes are open to anybody who wants to learn the techniques. So I do get some, you know, human resources people in there because they conduct interviews for job openings or employee misconduct and as well as private investigators and loss prevention officers. So most of them, can testify that, yeah, he, what he's saying is true. I've heard that so many times that when people say, I swear to God, I didn't do it, they probably did it. You know, it's not an absolute, but it's something to take a look at. Uh, only, only one time I had a, a linguistic expert in, in the class and they wanted to nitpick, you know, every little thing I said. Uh, for example, I talked about future tense. Well, technically there's no such thing as a future tense. You know, we have past tense words and present tense words, but in my opinion, we do have a future tense, or you wouldn't be able to talk about the future, but they want to nitpick like on stuff like that. But even then, the officers in the class are like, no, what he's saying is true. I mean, I've done many interviews, and I hear this all the time when they're being deceptive. So not too much resistance, because most of it is common sense, you know, if you listen to it. But sometimes we don't use our common sense. So again, I point out, you know, what to listen for in that statement. Right. And what is it about the tenses? Because you focus a lot on past tense and present, and I guess obviously there's no like clear future tense. But what, in your definition, what is what are what what is future tense, and what is it about the tenses that makes it stand out to you? Well, the future tense is when a person's gonna you know they have to add another word to the verb, like will I will go to the store. So that's you know sometime in the future, next week, tomorrow. But what you're looking for the verb tenses is that if a story's coming from memory. Then the person, as they describe what happened, everything would be in the past tense because that's what the rules of grammar tell us. You've got to use past tense language if you're talking about something that happened in the past. It doesn't matter if it's five minutes ago or five years ago. If it's all in the past and coming from their memory, they'll use past tense verbs. 
But when a person's making up a story, uh, sometimes they'll think about, well, how would I say this if it happened to me? And they may use past tense language, but for a lot of people, if they're making up a story, they'll use present tense verbs. And so by listening to those present tense language, um, that's an indication the story's not coming from memory. Coming from actual experience and memory. I, I get that. That's interesting. Right. When you looked at, uh, like, Casey Anthony, when she um, gave her statement to the police about her daughter, you know, dropping her daughter off at the nanny's apartment 31 days ago, and I haven't seen him, she used a lot of present tense verbs. I mean, mostly it was present tense language. And to my knowledge, she has good grammar skills. She's educated. And so that's a strong indication. It's not coming from your memory. It's coming from your imagination. You're making up this story. I'm going to say that we went on a uh, hiking trip once. It was uh, myself, Maggie Freeling, a a camera crew, uh, Tim, and Art Roderick. And during that hiking trip, Art Roderick turned around and said... You, Lance, mean so much to me. I want you to have this U.S. Marshal pin, and I want you to wear it uh, with pride, and I want you to tell people that I gave it to you, and I consider you the son I never had. And we will give you the transcript of this, <laughs> and uh, you can you can <laughs> let Tim know that I'm telling the truth because I just told this 100% honest story, <laughs> and it's completely not deceptive. I know Art Roderick. I don't think he'd say that. <laughs> well, just apply your rules to it. Just... <laughs> you know, you're being a little biased. <laughs> that's, that's true. <laughs> uh, well, thank you so much for joining us here, Mark, to uh, discuss uh, your process of statement analysis. We really appreciate it. What an interesting uh, process. It is. Just listen to what people tell you.